brother and his wife had their first child recently, and it was a pretty big deal. It was, you know, the first grandchild for my parents. But unfortunately for me, I'm just not that big of a baby guy. Like, I'm super awkward when I hold him. You know, my brother put his, his son in my lap, and my nephew looked up at me with this expression like, you have no idea what you're doing, do you? There's pictures, they're pretty hilarious. But lucky for me, thanks to my podcast sponsor, Kia Babies, I knew exactly where to go to get the perfect baby gift. I got my nephew this adorable little towel. It's got these bear ears on it. And now my entire family gets to enjoy these really cute pictures of my nephew. He's all smiley and he's got bear ears. I mean, that's pretty adorable, right? So next time you need a perfect baby gift or just something for your own kid, go check out Kia Babies. You can find a link in my show notes or on my podcast website. And when you check out, tell them to choose the struggle sent you. But I'm going to just go ahead and invite uh, Jay Schiffman up to share his story. So let's give it up for Jay. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Welcome back. It's, I was about to say, it's nice to see you all. I don't know. I, I've been doing a lot of interviews this week and I'm just sort of in that mindset. It's great to see you. So happy that we could both be here. Uh, this is a, I don't want to say heavy again, because I used heavy last week when we were talking about suicide and that is heavy. This is a more of a dense episode. I'll, I'll say that. Very policy heavy. Um, the interview is with Natalie Papillon, who is the head of the Equity Org, and she is just, I say incredible all the time. I was just actually on an interview right before I started recording this with someone who is also a podcast host. And we were comparing notes about how lucky we both find ourselves to be because we get to chat with incredible people. Natalie taught me a lot this week. I like to think that I know a good amount about the sort of racist lies that have built the war on drugs. Uh, and that's what they are, flat out, they're racist lies. You'll hear Natalie and I kind of get into that. Natalie knows more than me times a thousand. It's incredible how intelligent and knowledgeable she is. And she truly cares about this. And that comes out in our chat. It's dense in the sense that this isn't going to be an episode with a lot of humor. It's a little heavy in that respect, because a lot of this is Natalie peeling back the curtain and saying, guys, there's just no other way to see this, right? It's just a war on Americans that we are all sitting back and allowing the government to do. There was an Onion <laughs> post on Instagram earlier this week that said something like, uh, citizens so horrified by the idea of democracy falling that they're pretending it hasn't happened yet, which is terrifying. The pictures show people waiting, and you know, ten hours in line to vote, and then on the other picture was protesters being beaten by police. What Natalie and I sort of talk about here is that this is a lot farther down that road than we think. And, and it's scary. It is uh, really, it's been going on for, for decades, for generations, and it's, it's terrifying. The flip side of that is the shout out this week, who's a young woman named Annie Lieb. 
who is uh, a ray of sunshine. <laughs> She's incredible. We we got connected on LinkedIn, where, as I've said many times, we have this robust mental health community. Her whole thing is living with Annitude. She's just, uh, she's she's just amazing. You're going to want to follow her. As always, the the links are in the show notes, and they both shout out, you know, both Natalie and Annie, where you can find them. This episode is dedicated to a personal hero. Uh, sadly, we lost the incredible American Joe Morgan this week. I'm a big baseball fan. Y'all know that big Reds fan, which obviously makes me a big Joe Morgan fan. That was something that I was taught very early on from my father, who was lucky enough to be a Reds fan during the 60s and 70s, during sort of a golden era for, for our franchise. And that, of course, made him a big, big Red Machine fan, which made him a huge Joe Morgan fan. And so we were sort of taught the amazingness of Joe Morgan because he was the little guy like, like our family is but he played his heart out more than being the greatest second baseman of all time, which he was, no question about it. Joe Morgan was an incredible, incredible American. He was a black man in a sport that has a long history of excluding black players. He was the consummate sort of big brother to other black baseball players as a, as a, uh, Hall of Famer. He was known as being the guy who advocated for more advocacy and more work in black and brown communities. He famously sued the police department in, I think it was Los Angeles, over civil rights abuses that he himself suffered. Joe Morgan was an incredible American hero, and uh, we all mourn his passing this week. So this episode is dedicated to him, just coincidentally that we're talking about issues that he cared deeply about. But uh, more than that, just because he was incredible and a personal hero. All right. As always, keep reaching out. Um, you can find all the stuff you need in the show notes or on my podcast website. Cool stuff is being worked on behind the scenes. I Obviously, that means me uh, for season two, which will start in January. More on that in later episodes. But there's a lot of cool stuff going on. If you're interested in, in, in being ahead of that curve, jump on the Patreon now because that will start coming out probably next month. So um, get on Patreon, Patreon, uh, choose your struggle. It's just find it there. Anything else you need is in the show notes. I love you all. Enjoy this episode. I am an executive, a mom, a health and wellness business consultant and a podcast podcaster. And um, I am in the health and wellness space, usually in pharma and healthcare. And I'm here to talk about mind, body, and spirit, and how that has to align with our business professionals today. I think a lot of life experience struggles, both with mental health, you know, my own and, and people surrounding me, uh, as well as a lot of business experience and going back and getting my executive MBA at 40 with kids at home um, while working definitely has gotten me to this position today to share my wealth of knowledge with other people and help and heal others. That's my, my mission in life. My heart is in the mental health space. My heart is in helping others and healing others. And the reason I can do that so well and why people in my reviews don't say, you know, yeah, she's a valedictorian and we always copied her papers. Like, yeah, I mean, my papers were good. But like what people said about me, what people talk about when, I'm, when I leave the room is my warmth and empathy and compassion for others. And I'm here to make changes in the mental health 
arena. And the way I can do that is by helping others. And I started my business so that I could partner with executives and people and their teams um, to help them live their best lives. And to, I don't call myself a coach. I am in, in essence a coach in that I help people to live their cleanest, most toxin-free, best self lives possible. It's less about like a therapy type thing. And it's much more about finding solutions. So how can we, I'm like a fixer. I've always been a fixer. So to a fault at times in my life, I've been a fixer. And it's like, sometimes people just want to talk. I'm not that person. I'm not your, I'm not the therapist. I'm the like, okay, here's the problem. Let's, let's put together a solution. Let's find ways to get to the roots of these mental health issues. Understanding your past is important. Looking toward the future is important, but there's no other time besides right here, right now. Like I am focused on you right now. This is where it's at. There's nothing else on my mind or on my plate. I have learned to take it down a notch and be right here. And I've learned that through mindfulness and through gratitude lists and through journaling. And that is the, and breathing. That is the only way you can do it. That is the only way you can live your life. It's the only way you can be living with attitude. So if you're interested in me and you come to me, because I don't go out and find clients, all my clients are referrals and word of mouth. So if you're interested in me and you come to me, like there's a reason. Okay, so you can find me on LinkedIn at Annie Lieb. It's L-E-I-B MBA. I'm on LinkedIn. You can also find me at AnnieLieb.com. It's A-N-N-I-E-L-E-I-B.com. I also, on top of that, have a podcast called Living with Anitude, um, which is on YouTube. And you can find me under Living With Anitude. There's very little better than waking up in the morning to a truly fantastic cup of coffee. And if you're like me, you're looking for something that tastes fresh and isn't weak or overproduced. That's why I've switched to Four Sigmatic and I won't go back. Four Sigmatic mixes their beans with mushrooms to give your brain that jumpstart you didn't know you needed. So go to the link in my show notes or on my podcast page and use the code CHOOSEYOURSTRUGGLE at checkout for 10% off. You can sign up for one of their awesome subscriptions or just try buying a bag. And with their 100% money bag guarantee, there's no downside. So check them out today and don't forget the code CHOOSEYOURSTRUGGLE. I'm Natalie Papion. I am the founder and executive director of the Equity Organization, which is a nonprofit organization that focuses on drug policy reform as it relates to our criminal justice system here in the US, focusing on research and scholarship, policy, advocacy, coalition building, um, and public education around a more just, equitable, and effective approach to drug policy here in the US. So before founding and running the equity organization, I was very much in traditional corporate America. And I knew I wanted to do something a little more socially minded. But to be totally frank with you, my assumption was I would go and work on some campaign or do something in um, my personal life as a volunteer. And I was having a conversation with a colleague actually at Google totally serendipitously. And she mentioned offhandedly that her father had started a hedge fund in the cannabis space. 
And at first I didn't really think much of it, you know, good for you, good for your inheritance. You know, I, 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 I'm based in New York and um, I wasn't as familiar with sort of the growth of the regulated market. She's, she and her father were based on the West Coast, so obviously they were quite familiar with it. And I went home and just started Googling, like, oh, wow, I didn't realize this was a big enough industry to sort of generate hedge fund activity by sort of like wealth managers and whatnot. And as I was looking, I found it fascinating from a purely economic and intellectual perspective. But, you know, in a prior life, I had been sort of in academia um, around African-American studies, focusing specifically on the 50s and 60s and sort of Jim Crow era Southern politics. I'm from Atlanta and, um, you know, my parents lived through that in, in a very visceral and real way. And I hadn't necessarily spent a lot of time thinking about African-American history, political history, as it relates to mass incarceration and the war on drugs. But I had a pretty... Um, just intrinsic idea that the people who were disproportionately impacted by our drug policies and especially our cannabis laws were not the same people who are starting hedge funds in this space. Listeners know it's a pretty staggering that is the racial disparities both on the policing and arrest and incarceration side as well as the development of the legal industry. So for a few months, I learned as much as I could about the history of cannabis criminalization. I suspected it had some sort of racist or xenophobic motives. I was shocked by how overt and explicit those were. Um, you know, I looked into how the industry was developing today, the regulated industry, and was, of course, very upset to learn, not even upset, angry to learn that it, it was sort of recreating um, sort of like a racial caste system in the business world. And I decided, you know, this is so random and in certain ways, it's not my background, but I feel so strongly that we need to make sure we're righting the wrongs of the war on drugs, especially, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the war on weed. And we need to make sure that we are reckoning with this very, very long sorted racialized history and making sure that we don't continue to perpetuate those harms via cannabis policy, um, drug policy more generally, and fast forward a couple of years and I'm here, you know, focusing predominantly on the criminal justice related implications of cannabis criminalization and other, the criminalization of other narcotics or other drugs rather, and trying to also at the same time ensure that as those laws are liberalized or taken off the books. We're creating an equitable industry and we're really investing in the communities that were so ravaged by these policies. Beautifully put. I came to know about your work, uh, as I described it when we, when we were chatting, one of my favorite articles on, on you know, the real harms of the war on drugs, it's finally time to defund the drug war uh, that you wrote uh, as an opinion piece back in July. Thank you for, I'm so glad to hear that people are reading a lot of what's out there. I love to, you know, ingest information and, you know, even over the course of a few years have um, become very, very familiar, very intimate with the history. And so whenever I have the opportunity, I try and um, articulate that and, and help people and help educate people on this history you know, I often say I consider myself a pretty 
plugged in, relatively well-read um, news junkie and history junkie, and the fact that I was very, very unfamiliar with this work, with this history, and um, sort of this long, sorted story made me realize that I feel like I may not be the only one. Um, like many, I assumed that cannabis specifically was criminalized for public health reasons. And while there are, of course, public health implications to the liberalization of cannabis laws, that was not the impetus for um, marijuana prohibition whatsoever. It was much more nefarious and, and less well-intentioned than that for sure. And so via the course of this research, I wanted to put a lot of this together. I've dug around the archives, private papers. Um, I'm always sort of FOIA requesting to some government agency and after accumulating all this knowledge, I, I feel like it's sort of, um, I'm indebted to the people who have come before me, but I also want to make sure it's accessible to others. So I am, you know, it's been pushed a bit with COVID, but probably early spring 2021, releasing a book on the early history of cannabis enforcement um, and sort of drug policy more broadly, focusing really from the late 1800s to um, the mid 20th century, because I know there has been a lot of ink spilled on post-Nixon era drug policy, but there's um, some very fascinating stuff that's hap that obviously happened before then um, that informs a lot of what happened post-1970, and I want to make sure people are able to access that and learn from it and um, not repeat history, because I, I see a lot of that, even with drug policy liberalization happening today. I would love to dive into the, to that period because I, you're so right. When when we talk about the the quote unquote war on drugs and specifically uh, as it revolves around marijuana, we sort of focus on Nixon to now, which is as you perfectly said, there's a lot to get into there. But the war on drugs didn't start with Nixon. He sort of announced the official. Uh, coalescing around an idea that had already been going on for a long time. Why is it that we as sort of a country have completely forgotten the evils of Harry Anslinger to, to history? You know, I, I will give you my thoughts. I think there are a lot of factors as to why we um, focus on post Nixon to now. Um, I think that the biggest reason, and this does not just apply to drug policy, but it applies to sort of all of American history, is that we tend to be quite ahistorical as a country. I think we're relatively young. Um, I think our education system does not over rely, to say the least, on learning about the nuances of, of political history. So I think we just tend to study and act upon things that are more recent. And you know, everyone knows who Nixon was for reasons other than Vietnam and drug in the war on drugs or the drug war. He's a very um, visible <laughs> figure in, in American sort of socio-political history. So it's really easy to demonize Nixon and it's really more complicated to go further back than that, especially when you're talking about someone like Harry Anslinger, who at the end of the day was a bureaucrat. He was not an elected official. He was not necessarily getting books written about him. He's still not really getting books written about him. And so he doesn't have that celebrity 
that would make his story and, and his role in American political history um, pretty compelling. But I do think it's incredibly important that we realize that the war on drugs did not start with Nixon. In fact, you know, I, I would never want to paint myself as a Nixon apologist by any chance. I, you know, I have quite a few issues with um, his leadership as a whole, let alone his leadership when it comes to drug control strategy. But when you look at the presidents who came after him, Nixon formally declared the war on drugs, but he actually invested more money in public health facing initiatives than interdiction and law enforcement efforts. So I often say the real war on drugs started with Reagan. You know, Nixon and, and Carter and Ford, I would not say they were great on drug policy. I do think Carter deserves more credit for a lot of what he tried to do, but Reagan is really the one who accelerated and militarized it and, and increased policies that shaped the war that are playing at, that's playing out on American streets even today. Um, but before Nixon, he obviously didn't come up with this idea of criminalizing certain drugs and taking a law enforcement approach out of thin air. There's a long sordid history um, starting in the 19th century, actually, um, where we see American political figures and, and public figures link opium use, specifically smoking opium use, to Chinese immigration into the American West. And there's a labor story there, there's labor unrest, there's plain old racism and bigotry and xenophobia, there is political posturing and, and gerrymandering, all of those things <laughs> that uh, tend to accelerate really reactive policies, but we see this overtly racist imagery, this idea that this foreign substance consumed by these foreign people are an attack on American values, an attack on American lives. There's a sexual element to it, you know, as we see in pretty much the history of all drug policy, there's um, a lot of it pivots on this fear that white or Anglo-American um, women are going to consume these drugs and then you know, have sexual relationships with men of color. And I think miscegenation, which is not a word we use now, but it was in, in pretty much any text, uh, you know, in the 19th century and 20th century, early 20th century about drug use, um, there's always that element. And I think it plays on this idea that there are certain narcotics or there are certain drugs that are inherently American. And by inherently American, I mean, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, American, like alcohol and tobacco. And there are substances like smoking opium or um, cannabis or, you know, you name it. And those are threats. Um, and those are coming from different countries. You know, they're produced oftentimes in different countries. They are consumed predominantly or at least the beginning by certain ethnic groups or racial groups or, or sort of new groups of immigrants. And that foreignness is what makes them bad and, and to be fought and to be criminalized and to brutalize the people who are most closely associated with them. And that's, that's, that's centuries in the making. And we see that happening with opium in the Chinese, in the West. We see that happening with cocaine um, in the early 20th century, late 19th century with sort of a newly enfranchised African-American population. There's this fear that Black men are going are taking cocaine and it makes them bulletproof and they will uprise. They will be cocaine addled and they will uprise and sort of 
overthrow this racial caste system in the South and they'll have sex with white women and we'll have sort of a multiracial, um, you know, America and that should be feared. And then we really see that um, they refine that messaging when it comes to cannabis in the, in the 20s and 30s, especially with the Mexican immigration into American Southwest. And, and so it very much gets tied to those what Anslinger would testify before Congress as degenerate races are the people who are consuming these non-native drugs. And that's why we need to really put a lot of time and effort and energy and resources into um, fighting the scourge of drugs, but mostly fighting the people who use them. So if there's one thing, like this is, this is always uh, very fascinating to me as a student of history, especially on this topic. If there is a, a minor iota of good that comes from the overt discrimination and racism in language that was used in earlier times, it's that we don't have to sort of uh, filter dog whistle messages through, through our understanding, right? I mean, and to put that in a clearer way, we don't have to guess at what these people were trying to accomplish. It's all there. And, you know, you touch so, so perfectly on the, the uh, opium law, which for whatever reason has been sort of forgotten, except for those of us who really study this history, it is overtly in the, 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 both the arguments for the law and the law itself that this was specifically the type of opium that was used by Asian immigrants. And when we talk about Harry Anslinger, he has the famous quote that, you know, reefer was reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white people. He puts this shit just out there. And so there isn't, we, when we're talking about current racism and current bigotry and current discrimination, people sometimes push back and go, oh, that's not what they meant. We don't have that shit with these laws. It's right there. It is right there. But you know what? I am still fascinated and horrified by the fact that even though there's no dog whistle, it's explicit, we're using slurs, no one's trying to hide anything. Um, especially when you get into the 20th century, this was not a social norm. You know, it, Harry Anslinger was censored on the floor of Congress for using slurs. Like, even if it was a lot more um, bigoted of a society, he was an outlier even then. But people still like to pretend or, or ascribe meaning to a lot of these quotes that are different from the very explicit meaning. The, there was a New York Times article maybe last week or two weeks ago about the DEA and they had an, a virtual exhibition on Anslinger's life. And there was like, there's a controversy because he used a racial slur. And the DEA, um, you know, quotes his grandson who said, of course, my, you know, my, my grandfather wasn't a racist and the DEA officials sort of are towing the party line and saying, you know, that was a mistake, but his, his work was not racially motivated. And to see that in the New York Times less than two weeks ago in the year of our Lord 2020 is fascinating to me. It shows that there's not a lot of um, honesty. There's not a lot of self-reflection happening and there's not enough scholarship and research into this because you need, it, it takes an hour to dig into um, everything that Han Anslinger thought or an everything he said to show it wasn't, he didn't accidentally use a slur. Like his entire impetus for a lot of what he was doing was xenophobia and bigotry. 
And so even today, we have to fight back against people who sort of want to gaslight the public by ascribing benign or, or non-malevolent incentives or, or sort of efforts or desires to something that was very, very obviously prejudicial. So we still have a lot of work to do. I did not know about that. Thank you for, for educating me, and, and I clearly stand corrected. I guess in a sense that shouldn't be surprising, uh, although it doesn't surprise me that the, that the DEA or the, the enforcement agency itself would defend these actions uh, because I, I, I can see a situation where if they were able to, if they even said for a second, yep, those were racially motivated, people like you who do this work would be able to say, well, if you're saying that was racially motivated and everything you're doing today was built on that, aren't you then able to say that your entire work around this issue is, is, a, is, is racist, is overtly racist? And so even opening that door a little bit is incredibly dangerous for them. And, and when you said that a really interesting point about the reason that Anslinger is sort of forgotten a little bit is that he was a bureaucrat, you know, the same argument could be made for J. Edgar Hoover, who has not been forgotten. And the two actually have a lot in common in terms of being overtly discriminatory and quite predatory in their work. Oh, a thousand percent. They were actually friends. I think Hoover, the reason he's probably so renowned and I feel like Matt Damon's always playing him or something in some movie is he was <laughs> quite, um, <laughs> he was very much in the public eye. And I think he actively sought to be pub in the public eye. And I also think to be totally frank, Anzinger was working on drug policy, which was important to, for the U.S., but in terms of occupying the public consciousness, it was not, you know, one of the top three um, sort of issues or, or social issues, rather, um, whereas Hoover was working on something that was quite top of mind for the public, sort of the political culture. So you don't really see public interest, like widespread public interest or concern around narcotics use until the 70s and 80s, to be totally frank. Um, when marijuana was criminalized in the US, you know, this is a bit of a gross generalization, but most people were not familiar with the substance, especially when you think about it as sort of like a social lubricant or sort of a recreational um, substance. And so Anslinger was not a publicity hound like Hoover, and his issue was just not as important at the time. How, if had Anslinger been working in the 70s and 80s, perhaps we would know a little bit more about him, but you know, he retires, I guess, in the early 60s, um, and he sort of lost to the annals of history. So before we pivot, uh, I would love to pause and give my listeners a chance to learn where they can follow you um, and, 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 you know, shout out all the stuff that, that you want to shout out. Okay, well, um, thank you. You know, we do a lot on social media. So if, you, if you're on Instagram or Twitter or even LinkedIn, um, twitter.com backslash equity org. Uh, same with Instagram, instagram.com slash equity org. I will say we do a lot of writing and publishing. And so I love to direct people to our Medium account. So medium.com backslash equity org. You'll find a lot on the sort of historical underpinnings of, of drug enforcement strategy in the US, as well as some issues that we're wrestling with in the current day.
Are you ready to take your hemp experience to a whole new level? Because if so, I want to tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Made. Their puff line of smokable flour is unreal. They meticulously source each strain from select partner farms to ensure only the highest quality product in the marketplace. When it comes to the entourage effect, nothing tops strain-specific flour. It delivers the full range of all the amazing effects of CBD, I can tell you because I use it myself. With 0.7 grams of premium full flour inside of each pre-roll, you'll be ready to maximize your personal summit whenever you smoke. So check out Mountain Made today and grab a puff. They're federally compliant with less than 0.3% THC, which means they ship nationwide. All right, I'm going to grab a puff and let's get back to the episode. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, man, I just, I don't even know where to begin. Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away, all in one spot. You can do it from your phone or your computer. They'll even distribute for you so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. I'll say it this way. When you and I first sat down to chat, we were still discussing sort of the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. Uh, unfortunately, we now have another you know, gross misuse of force and I, I i honestly don't have the words to to perfectly articulate the awful disgustingness of what we saw the other day with mr blake i think this is such a perfect thing to talk about and that is that people don't realize that as we watch police use force against everyday americans as we watch police use military style tactics and everything from body armor to weapons against Americans, we can make a direct link between all of that and the war on drugs. And I don't think that relationship is talked about enough. And so I really appreciate that that's a project you've been working on. Thank you. Yes, I tell everyone Everything they're saying on their Twitter feeds, everything they're seeing play out on the nightly news, the gross sort of over-policing of different neighborhoods, um, sort of incredibly brutal techniques and practices, those, I I won't say they're directly, you know, they didn't start with the war on drugs. American policing has a sordid history that starts way before um, sort of Nixon and, and Reagan, but they've been accelerated and escalated and expanded solely because of sort of the drug war. And there, you know, there are a few ways to look at it. So if you're like I am, I guess I wasn't shocked, but I'm still horrified by the militarization of police, I would encourage anyone to look at the Section 1033 program, which is a federal, you know, Department of Defense administered grant program that basically gives local law enforcement agencies access to military grade technology and weaponry for free. Um, and 
billions and billions worth of dollars. So if you're wondering why, you know, Pleasantville, USA has a mine resistant Humvee truck in a, in a cul-de-sac, they got it from 1033 or a similar program or like a, a JAG grant or something like that. So um, starting in the 70s and really ramping up in the 80s and 90s, um, especially the 90s, actually, we started these programs that dump billions of dollars worth of military grade equipment into anyone who asked for it, provided it's being used for counter narcotics activity. So it wasn't like, oh, here's some money, here's some sniper rifles or whatnot. And, you know, if you're doing drug enforcement, like you can use it for that. No, no, no. This was, these programs are predicated on this equipment and these dollars being used for counter drug operations. And, and, you know, post September 11th, you also see some of that allocated to anti-terrorism operations. But of course, Pleasantville USA is not really grappling with that, as you can imagine. So when you look at the militarization of police, direct tie to drug war policies and practices. When we think about things like the no-knock arrest that killed Breonna Taylor, um, obviously that that is drug war related. Um, we've seen a steady erosion in Fourth Amendment rights. They, call, they often call it the drug exception to the Bill of Rights, actually, um, because prosecutors and police departments and politicians have continually sort of made it so that traditional um, limitations on searches and seizures and the needs for warrants and whatnot um, do not apply to any sort of police activity related to drug enforcement, public enemy number one. So you have these extraordinary provisions that are totally unconstitutional and, and totally ineffective. Um, SWAT teams. Now, SWAT teams existed before the official declaration of the war on drugs, but they were used for extraordinary situations. You know, they were really sort of conceptualized for huge riots or, or sort of social unrest, school shootings, um, you know, hostage-taking situations. Now, the vast majority of SWAT teams, which have sort of proliferated around the country, both the number of sort of teams, the outfitting of these SWAT teams, as well as the number of deployments have all skyrocketed. And they're used to serve drug warrants. They're used for drug arrests, almost exclusively. They're not really used for anything else. And um, they're incredibly dangerous. They're incredibly costly, both in terms of just keeping these, um, you know, teams running, but also the number of lawsuits that are filed in the wake of these sort of no-knock raids or, or drug raids, because as we know, you just need to scan a headline. They're very, very dangerous. Um, and a lot of you know, people who survive, which is not everyone, as we know all too well, oftentimes file lawsuits and win against the police department or the prosecutor's officer or whatnot. And they also, they put police officers' lives in, in danger. You know, their most big sort of police-related organizations are anti sort of the escalation of SWAT team. Not most, but there are quite a few prominent ones because there's no need to sort of use all of this force to bust someone who may, well, they shouldn't be busting anyone in the first place, but who may be growing a few marijuana cannabis plants in their in their backyard. And because of the way police are incentivized and because of the ways case law works, the mass majority of the time, if you're using a drug grade, a SWAT assisted drug grade, you're doing it for a very small amount of, 
of sort of narcotic related material because you can only do it if the amount of material can be easily disposed of. Well, it's pretty easy to flush a few joints down a toilet. It's not particularly easy if, if you have like a huge sort of meth lab to sort of dispose of that. So you only really get a warrant if you're looking for <laughs> a small amount of drugs, which is totally counterintuitive and ineffective in so many different ways. So that's sort of on the militarization side, but then I'll say something that most people are probably familiar with, uh, stop and frisk, and just sort of like the proliferation of, of patrol cops and um, people on the street, that really ramped up in the 90s and the early 2000s, same with traffic stops, and that was directly tied to drug enforcement, both on the federal level and then the state and local level. Um, we see that I'm based in New York, so of course there's a horrific history of using sort of searches and seizures like stop and frisk or, but that only exists, those very, very frequent police public contacts, which are disproportionately, almost exclusively in low-income neighborhoods of color, come from drug enforcement efforts and quality of life policing, which is just another name for drug enforcement efforts. So everything we're seeing directly tied back to drug control strategy and the most important thing is very, very, very ineffective drug control strategy. Everything that's been done, no impact on American drug consumption. Actually, it's had an oppositional impact. Yeah, I think that's a, you finished with a very, very important point, which is that there have been numerous studies that show that that drug use has continued at the rate that was essentially expected before the drug the war on drugs started. And, and you also made it clear, which I appreciate want to under underline these are predominantly um out the outcomes of this uh, of the war on drugs are used in predominantly communities of color and against black and brown americans it's not that there aren't white americans who who are the you know on, on the receiving end of these horrible policies there are and you know, we obviously feel for them as well but it is a majority against communities of color. And even though we know from, again, numerous studies that use among communities is essentially equal. Oh, a thousand percent. Actually, you know, I'm, I'm speaking a lot about cannabis, but this could apply to several other substances. In New York, for example, which has been the epicenter of cannabis enforcement for, you know, over 20 years, almost 30 years, actually, um, white residents are twice as likely to consume cannabis than black or brown residents. So literally twice as likely. Um, and yet black and brown New Yorkers make up 90 to 93% of all cannabis related enforcement. So not only, you know, across the country, it's changing a bit, you know, consumption levels are pretty much the same according to different sort of racial groups. Actually black and brown Americans are actually now slightly less likely to, to sort of consume cannabis, but you see um, the enforcement almost exclusively targeted at the people who are the least likely to actually be in possession of this, um, of this substance. So the racial disparities are staggering, even in states that have liberalized their laws. They continue even when the substance is decriminalized. They oftentimes actually escalate after a substance is decriminalized, which is this interesting sort of legal um, 
analysis that I won't get into, but that's also really fascinating to think about. And I think I say this and it feels very, very um, flippant or, or it feels like maybe a bit of an overgeneralization. It's not, it's not drug control, it's social control. And that's what I think it's really important for everyone to understand. It's not really about both in its inception, its ideological, ideological underpinnings, as well as its enforcement. It's never really been about controlling drug consumption in the US. You know, I'm not gonna speak for everyone, but the vast majority of people. It's about controlling certain populations in the US. And this is just a really, really relatively easy way to do so is by escalating drug enforcement. Again, it goes back to what we were saying that a lot of this is overt. There, there are no, it, it, there are less dog whistles and more overt, you know, bullhorns. And and you know, the quote that I always go back to is John Ehrlichman, who was the advisor to to Nixon, who said flat out in the '90s, and when you know when he was being interviewed about this, look. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be black or, or a hippie against the war, but we could make it illegal to use the drugs that those communities used and we could police them out of, you know, all, all of that. So um, it, it's, it is blatant and yet there are still people. And, and I will say this, you know, I was asked this not long ago by a reporter, do you get mad, you know, when someone comes at you with that stigma against drug use, against, you know, as a person in recovery, uh, you know, against your disease, whatever you want to call it. And I said, no. I said, we've had this drilled into us since before my grandparents were born. Why would I be mad at someone who doesn't even realize that they've had this, these ideas implanted in their brain? Now, do I want them to educate themselves? Yes. Do I want them to open their mind to the possibility that they've been lied to for their entire life? Yes, I want that. But am I mad at them? No, because it's be like mad, being mad at someone for breathing air. You, you don't even realize you're doing it. Not at all. And I do. One thing that law enforcement agencies, public figures, political sort of elected officials have been really good at is propaganda. They've been very, very bad at actually <laughs> improving the public's health when it comes to drug consumption, but they've been incredibly efficient and successful at demonizing drug users, um, criminalizing drug users, and making the American public, whether they consume drugs or not, um, feel like there is a moral failing associated with it, or there is sort of a um, inherent criminality and sort of, I guess, yeah, criminality towards substance consumption, I think. And that's really been negative, both in terms of what we see with sort of the rise of mass incarceration, but also the psychological impact on people who are struggling um, with, you know, potentially problematic substance use. It's made it so, but we don't fund and we don't uh, put resources towards rehabilitation and sort of people who who no longer want to consume, we don't make that easy for anyone. And in fact, we make it actively difficult. If all, if where we're putting funding and where we're and what the rhetoric, the public rhetoric is, is an indication of what, how we really feel, then we don't give a shit, you know, about actually making people better and making people healthier and happier and more productive. We just care about throwing people in jail and making them feel like shit about themselves. Um, and that's been very, very, very obvious. So before we go to the closing questions, uh, I would love to, and you, you know, I sort of 
do this because I'm passionate about it. And, and, and I, you know, the research and the history is, is not literally my day job. It's what I do to help me with my day job. And also because I, I find it just incredibly fascinating, but you do this for a living. So tell me and tell my listeners and tell everybody out there, what is going to get, what is giving you hope and what should give them hope? You know, there's actually a lot, and I, I, I'm not a particularly optimistic person. I'm very skeptical of a lot of progress just because I've seen it play out. But if anything, the past couple of months has taught us that a lot of people were not aware of sort of the nefarious intentions or sort of the problematic implications of how we treat drug consumption, how we, how we conceptualize the role of the police in American society, um, just what we think about politicians and elected officials more generally, now that we're shining a bit of a light on the really inherently negative aspects of a lot of this, I think we're going to continue to see change. And while I've been a little disappointed personally that a lot of the efforts have not touched on drug policy, which I'm biased, of course, but I do feel like animate pretty much every social issue, every racial inequity or inequality, um, social sort of injustice in this country today, eventually people are going, and sooner rather than later, hopefully, are going to realize that until we change drug policy, until we understand and conceptualize it and treat it as a public health issue, not a, a cr crime and um, punishment issue, we will not see meaningful change in every aspect of American society. So while there's appetite for it, while there's increased public education around it. I think I'm very optimistic that we can actually push politicians who may have been reticent to um, you know, move things forward and take a more uh, common sense and efficient and effective approach to a lot of these issues. We're in that moment where we can put their feet to the fire um, and get them to make some real changes. And if they decide not to, we can vote them out. And you know, I, I'm speaking a lot to sort of the political process and, and sort of electoral politics. But I think it also starts with education amongst the public because they work for us. The people who make the laws and enforce the laws work for us. So we need to start demanding change. And one of my big goals for the rest of the year is to really not, you know, there are many, many different issues with our criminal legal system and they don't all directly tie into drug policy, but we need to make sure that we are centering conversations around drug policy in this broader cultural context, in this cultural moment, because until we dismantle a lot of that, until we sort of defund the drug war, we're not going to see the changes that we need to see to make sure we are living in a more productive and just and equitable um, and happy and healthy America. Beautifully put. Thank you for that. Before we get into the last two questions, one more time, shout out where all my listeners can find you and then we'll, we'll go towards the close. We are on social media. So Twitter backslash um, equity org, same with Instagram. And then I highly recommend heading to our medium account, medium.com backslash equity org. We have a lot of writing and education and we use that platform um, quite prolifically. So if you're looking to, to learn a little bit more, please check us out there. Wonderful. Well, it's been great talking to you. Uh, I end with the same two questions every time. And that is number one, uh, what is your what are your self care habits? You know, we are living in a very stressful time. What is what is working for you to help you 
bring back to center? And number two, we've talked a lot about why we should all be following you, but who are some people you're following? Who are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching uh, that you think we should all go check out? Oh, that's a great question. So self-care, this is very basic. I love to sleep. You know, when I'm well rested, I just work better, I'm happier, I'm more productive. So however, however I can, I, I love to nap. I'm a napper. And then in terms of people um, to follow, this is going to be tough because there's so many incredible people. Obviously, the Drug Policy Alliance has been doing a lot of this work for a long time. I love to follow them. Last Prisoner Project, full disclosure, I am on the board of the Last Prisoner Project, but they're doing a lot of the direct services that help um, sort of free people who are currently incarcerated for cannabis-related crimes. And I'm, you can't see me, but I'm using crimes um, in quotation marks. Um, and they're also doing more and more policy work and restorative justice work. You know, there are Students for Sensible Drug Policy is great. Um, clergy for a New Drug Policy, they aren't as active on social media, but um, I think it's really important that we're hearing from people who may not be what you consider when you think of a drug policy reformer or a drug policy um, reform advocate. These are priests and rabbis and imams, and they're, they're, um, they recognize that the way we treat drug use in this country is um, not in line with their sort of faith nor or sort of their ideological understanding of, of their faith, nor is it effective. So I, I often like to talk to people who are a little bit outside of my traditional social circle. So they're great. And then I also think, um, you know, as you can probably guess, I tend to be a little more left-leaning. Um, but there are some incredible organizations that are, you know, more on, on the libertarian bent, um, on the more right-leaning bent, but have a really interesting, nuanced um, approach to drug policy. So like Reason, for example, um, is is interesting. The RAND, the RAND Corporation, they have a think tank. They publish a lot of white papers, um, both on the economic impact as well as sort of the social and criminal justice related impact. So them, and then of course, this is one small sliver of sort of the massive engine of mass incarceration. And so more traditional criminal justice focused organizations, the appeal is great. The Marshall Project is great. Prison policy initiative is great um, because while I focus on drug policy, there are many other issues um, that have contributed to this horrifying situation in the U.S. So um, I, I recommend that people understand how all these different parts come together um, to create this criminal injustice in this country because we're, we're going to need to push on all of it if we really want to see change. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time. This was uh, fantastic to finally get a chance to really dive in with you. Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate it. I so appreciate that you're spending so much time um, focusing on this. You know, of course, I know it's not your your day job, but, you know, all of these things very are very interrelated. And the more we can just uh, unpack that for folks, the better the outcome is going to be. So I, I really appreciate you having me. I love this. I hope you get a chance to speak again soon. All right, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you for tuning in to episode 38 of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. 
I hope you are energized by Annie Lieb. Uh, I always am when I listen to her stuff or read what she has online. Uh, she, she makes me smile and makes me excited to do whatever I'm doing. And then contrasted with Natalie, who, yeah, she ended on a positive note, which I do want to, I want to focus on for just a second. Usually I cut those down. Like people love that part, right? And you heard it from Natalie. She was very excited to do that. And I cut those down because people can go on for four or five minutes sometimes about all the incredible people that they follow, which is amazing. I left Natalie's in to highlight something. We who believe that the war on drugs is a racist war on American people and founded on lies. We are not sort of the loudest voices in the corner screaming. We know we're not the loud minority. Ending the war on drugs is a very popular idea. And it's not that people are asked that specific question, right? They ask questions like, do you believe that we should outlaw no-knock warrants or no-knock raids or whatever the case is? Do you believe that stop and frisk is being used to target black and brown Americans, like these kind of things. And the answer is always overwhelmingly yes. In every group, we have been made to think that this is a, uh, you know, not a big issue. We've been taught that this is Democrats only, and that's just not the case. This is not partisan. All sides and, and, and everybody overwhelmingly, you know, we're talking 70% for a lot of these issues, believes that this stuff is just downright despicable. So go back if you want to and listen to all those people that Natalie follows, because that gives me hope that this is a thing we can end. There are so many amazing groups doing this work. And something to think about, this touches us in so many different ways. It's not just lives being upended or ruined. It's not just the prison industrial complex. It's our tax dollars that are being wasted by these policies. You know, Natalie mentions if you wonder how it is that, you know, Pleasantville, USA is, has a tank driving down a cul-de-sac, we paid for that. We did. The American people paid for that tank. You know, the police aren't paying money for that. That was us. We gave them that. We gave them these incredible weapons of war that are being used against us. We gave them the body armor. Here's where it's even more gross. We gave them the money that is being used to defend them when they kill somebody. The, the, the news doesn't talk about that a lot. The next time one of these killer cops goes to court, that's not his dollar. That's being used to hire a lawyer. That's not his dollar defending him. That is ours. Let that sit with you for a second. Billions, tens of billions of dollars are being wasted every year. Sort of related, there's a show on Netflix that my wife and I love called Trigger Warning with Killer Mike, Killer Mike who some of you may know. Uh, rapper, part of the Dungeon family, which is Outkast's you know, collective. He's also in Run the Jewels, which is a very popular rap duo. He has a song that I think you should all check out. It's in the show notes called Ronald Reagan, Reagan 
that is all about sort of this idea that Natalie touches on, which is the um, softening over time of, of some of these, the images of these people. You know, we think of Reagan as, oh, grandpa, you know, he was such a kind. Ronald Reagan is the fucking devil. And Killer Mike has a song about this specific thing because he talks about how a lot of these things that Natalie so perfectly touches on, we associate with Richard Nixon because Richard Nixon officially launched the war on drugs. But Ronald Reagan was the one who made all of this possible. And yet no one's talking about him right now. You know, as we see police barging down doors with battering rams that they acquired from the government using our tax dollars, all of this is thanks to Reagan. So uh, go check out that song. Educate yourself a little bit. I mentioned this. I don't get mad at people who don't know this. It's been hidden from the, us. The opposite of this was taught in schools. You know, I joked with John Hudek, um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, about how dare and just say no were literally taught in schools. So do some education. I, I, I hope that these conversations that I have on this podcast are not the end of this for you. It should be the beginning. Go read uh, The New Jim Crow, obviously an amazing book. Go watch 13th, a great documentary. There's a lot out there. Uh, the People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, incredible book. Go read these things because people are putting this information out there and, and not enough people know this because we're not being taught in schools. I wonder why. All right. Here is your card for the week brought to you by Blurt. This is the last one read by my father, Steve Schiffman. And here it is. This is from the Believe in Yourself card set. Prioritize rest. It allows you to be the calmest, most badass, rational, restored version of yourself. That's a wonderful card. I am uh, sad that that's the last one I, I had him read. There's one more from my mom coming. My wife and I was just joking this morning, actually. We have become those people in quarantine that are like prioritizing sleep above everything else. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, it's been years since I was the guy that was out late at night at the club or something, but getting adequate sleep is so important, and it's something that we were taught for a long time was dumb or or was like a sign of weakness or get out of here with that bullshit. Sleep is so important. You heard Natalie say that that is her form of self-care. Like, it's just so important. Get some sleep. Do that for yourself. Your good egg for this episode is twofold. Number one, go listen to Reagan by Killer Mike. That's in the show notes. But number two, I get a lot of opportunities to tell my story. I think it's incredibly important to, to normalize talking about struggle, uh, about substance misuse, about mental health. There's a book that just came out called Gladversity that is, I believe, 40 stories similar to mine in very small bite-sized forms. You know, my, I think my story is a page and a half. I was lucky to be a part of this. And you can find it on Amazon. I think that's the only place that we're selling it right now. The woman who put it together is Laura Borland. She's an amazing editor, and she did all this. She reached out to people like myself who do this work and asked if she could have our stories for this collective. I think it's incredible. The link is in the show notes. I've purchased it myself. I'm not just in it. I purchased it. So go and check that out if that's a thing you're interested in. I never advocate spending money for people that don't have it. Don't do this if, 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 you know, 15 or whatever it is, $18 is something that you can't afford. I completely understand. If you have the money and want to support a great cause, go check out this book. 
what's amazing to me is it released last week and it's already in the top 1% of Amazon. So pretty exciting about uh, that people want to read these stories. That's incredible. Go check it out. All right. Without further ado, we're going to end this episode. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. Like I said early on, great things coming on this show, especially getting ready for season two, which will start in January. Jump on the Patreon, choose a struggle on Patreon if you want to stay up to date on that. Check out the podcast survey to keep letting me know what you think as I prepare for season two. And uh, reach out. You can find all that in the show notes. You can find that on my website, jshiffman.com. I want to hear from you. So this week, the most important thing is be vulnerable, show your empathy, spread your love, and choose your struggle. So it looks like we're going to be hanging out inside for at least a little while longer. And with the colder months coming up fast, there's never been a more perfect time to stock up on all your comfy clothes. Lucky for you, you listen to the Choose Your Struggle podcast, and I have a sweet deal for you today. Check out my sponsor, Pair of Thieves. They've got everything you need, from shorts to lounge pants to underwear and bras. They even have a line of Disney socks with all your favorite characters on it. But here's the best part. If you use the link in the show notes or on my podcast website and the discount code RakutenThieves, don't worry, that's in the show notes too, you'll get 20% off every full price item in your shopping cart. So stock up on all your comfy clothes today and help out the podcast in the process.